3: Hi, this is Sophia Deboy. I write every week in The New European on the music scene across Europe and the UK. If you'd like to enjoy more from The New European, do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe.
4: Hello oh, Snowflakes and welcome back to the New European podcast, a British eye on European politics, European culture from the people who bring you the New European newspaper. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, join us by subscribing for just 9 99 a month at the neweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. I'm recording this episode at a time of flux in politics and sport. Is football coming home? Is Starmer going home? Is Andy Murray still, as he is at the time of recording, a great British hero? Or is he lost by the time you're hearing this and therefore he's being slagged off on social media as a miserable Scot who wants to break up the union? What happened in Batley and Spen? Did Labour defy all the odds and end all the talk of a leadership challenge? Or did the prat in the hat who used to pretend to be a cat get his way and let the Tories in for a win, which is going to have Andy Burnham zipping up his cagoul and going on manoeuvres? And as you're listening to this, are England still our Euros heroes? Or are they just a gang of knee-taking, virtue-signalling, woke snowflakes who are so Marxist that even both our goals from Germany came from down the left? One thing we know for sure is that Matt Hancock is out of a job. Maybe his pub landlord or his sister will give him a role making PPE. I asked some new European listeners uh, to this podcast, what job do you think Matt Hancock should do next? Matthew Payton said he should be GB News' health correspondent. Rob J. Byrne said he should be a contestant on Love Island. Karen Phoenix-Hollis said he shouldn't have a job. Let's see him try and survive on Job Seekers Allowance for a little bit. Chris Jones said he should be a hospital caretaker with substandard PPE. Klaus von Horsten said he should be a CCTV camera installer. And Pamela Baines said he should do what other failed rich politicians do, journalism. Oh, thanks very much for that, Pamela. <laughs> Now, my first guest who writes every fortnight in The New European will be familiar to you all from politics.co.uk, from The Eye, from the Oh God, What Now podcast. Uh, his piece this week for The New European has got the alluring title, Boris Johnson's Fall Will Come and It Will Be Swift <laughs> and Brutal. God, I really love saying that. Hello, <laughs> <are> you, <Duncan. laughs> hello. Hello. How are you? I am well, very well. All the better for hearing you. Before... We turn to this lovely piece, Boris Johnson's Fall Will Come and It Will Be Swift and Brutal. Um, I'm just going to keep saying that. <laughs> this month is, is, we're in July, it's it's going to mark the fifth anniversary of Theresa May becoming Prime Minister. Do you remember when Theresa May, was, she was Prime Minister, wasn't she? I didn't just dream this. My question is, if Theresa May had stayed, would she have been any better than this lying, rule-breaking, cronyistic, dog-whistling nightmare we're all currently living in right now?
3: Okay. yes, Uh, on one basis only, which is that she was easier to defeat. You know, I mean, She she was just such a catastrophic political leader that you actually, you know, electorally, she was much less convincing you could take her down more easily. But this idea that she is somehow sort of much more honourable than Boris Johnson or um, more moderate than he was just doesn't stack up. The the process that we see right now started in that first Tory party conference after the referendum result when she stood up and she said we're not leaving the EU just to have freedom of movement, we're not leaving it just to go back to the European Court of Justice and then she later on did her speech about citizens of the world are citizens of nowhere. Now that Not only was that just the beginning of a kind of irrational approach to Brexit, where there was no soft Brexit, there was no reason to it, there was no moderation to it, there was no respect for the people who voted another way. It was also just the sort of insertion of UKIP's nationalist politics into the Conservative Party. Now, she was the one that did it. Now, later on, Boris Johnson completed that. I mean, he literally purged the Tory party of any remaining moderate Conservatives within it. But that process started with her. She was the one that decided not that this isn't just a technocratic debate over the EU. It's not really just about the EU. It's about the adoption of nationalist politics into Britain. And that lies with her. And it was continued by Boris Johnson. There's much more continuity between these two figures than people generally realise.
4: Yes. she. I mean, she. you're absolutely right. She, she did not only threw them a bone, did she? she you know, she, she threw them a a piece of rare fillet going this will satisfy them and, and it did satisfy them and then they went well we want more red fillet anyway rare fillet so you know I mean I, I just I can't get on the on board with this uh, the, the Theresa May was somehow more caring bandwagon look at look at all the hostile environment and all of that mm-hmm. kind of stuff mm-hmm. um let's turn to this brilliant piece of yours whose, whose headline I like reading out so much you you write in it about Jean-Jacques Rousseau, one of many names I know next to nothing about. What has Jean-Jacques Rousseau got to do with the price of chips and, indeed, the terrible way? This <laughs> <in this> country? <laughs> um, uh, Rousseau
3: is from the 1700s. He's a Swiss guy. Almost completely insane. Um, his sort of philosophy. He basically had this incredibly pessimistic view of the world. Where basically, society just ruins mankind. You can't really get past it. Everything is hopeless. And because he has that philosophy, everybody hated him. The Enlightenment philosophers hated him. The authorities hated him because he was a bit too eccentric. And it kind of just shattered his mind after a while. But when you look at his philosophy, you find it in pretty much every form of populism that comes afterwards. From you know, from the French Revolution um, to sort of Soviet Russia to Nazi Germany to the new age of nationalism that we're in now, whether it's sort of Bolsonaro in Brazil or Trump in the US or Brexit here. And that's this idea that the, he called it the general will, but you can basically in modern terms, you call it the will of the people. And in fact, not even modern terms, it was already translated into the phrase, the will of the people during the French revolution is this kind of pure sense of virtue. The people are homogenous, they have one will, And the will is sort of usually encapsulated by a figure at the top. He called them the legislator. We would call them, you know, usually the prime minister, the president, whoever claims it. Um, And no other values really matter. So you can forget about your institutions, you know, the courts, the parliaments, the press, all these things that are there to constrain um, the way that politics functions, to protect people's rights, to protect other values, outside of, you know, the democratic will. And you can forget about other values in general. You can forget about things like public standards in life. You can forget about anti-corruption drive. None of those things matter. All that matters is the will. And we see that now. Like If you look at the interview this week with uh, Robert Buckland, the Justice Secretary, um, Robert Buckland, pretty decent sort of overall in cabinet. I mean, I think he's one of the most accomplished people in, in cabinet, catastrophically uh, in a state of moral decline at the moment as he just sort of ingests johnsonian vision of politics he goes on the today program basically says all right so you want to go on about the flat you want to go on about the fact that we don't know where the money is coming from but it doesn't really matter because we have high opinion polling, because we won the local elections. And that, when you trace it back, goes all the way back to Rousseau. All that matters is you've got that sense of there's public support. And as long as that's established, all the other values can go into terminal decline. And that right now is is the period we're living in. It's not Rousseau's fault, but you can trace it back to that guy 300 years ago.
4: uh, What an extraordinary state of affairs it it really is. I mean, you, you talk about the government having to like culture war fires in order to to kind of, you know, keep people on their side or keep people Keep this kind of oppositional politics, whether, you know, there is one kind of will of the people and the will of the people is against wokeism. I don't know. I can't really decide whether this government is totally rudderless without Dominic Cummings and even, you know, the likes of Michael Gove seemingly put into a box or, or, or whether it's a kind of a well-oiled and dangerous machine. How do you see it? <laughs> it's uh, There's a little bit of both, right? Um, it is fundamentally
3: rudless, and you can see it with, you know, the war on woke stuff, which is this desperate casting about for another culture war. And you need that. If you want to be the government of the will of the people, they had it before with Brexit. It served them very, very well indeed. And they need another example. So they go yeah. for things like statues it becomes increasingly esoteric and bizarre you know they go for like critical race theory you just think like really like do you really think that that's going to get you where you need to be that enough people have any idea what this is or would feel sufficiently sort of incentivized by it for it to affect their vote and they're casting for it for a reason they need something like that in order to make the narrative work and they haven't found it it's very hard for them to find something that hinges that way but they can create a lot of division and a lot of hatred in many different areas of policy just by casting about for it. On the other hand, the, the fact that makes it feel well-oiled, well-oiled is the wrong word, really, but the fact that it makes it efficient is ultimately just that guy at the top, Boris Johnson, that he has that ability to make people like him. We can, we can deny this as much as we want, and it pains me every time I have... I beg your pardon, we're not swearing on this podcast. <laughs> but it's true. And on that basis, that intuitive sense that he can get away with it, there is a it is much easier for the government to continue operating in this way than it would be having, I think, pretty much anyone else in that position.
4: It's very it's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, we had a great piece uh, a couple of weeks ago from Robin Vinter in in Batley and Spen, who again, yeah. you know, spoke to people who clearly weren't that engaged with politics, and a couple of them said Young, younger People said, "I think I might vote conservative." He's he's a laugh, isn't he, Boris Johnson? And just God, no, he is not a laugh. Mm. You you say that the Tory lead is more vulnerable than people assume. When when Boris Johnson remains mystifyingly popular, how is it more vulnerable than than people assume?
3: Yeah, so let's look at um, look at look at the velocity of polling change. Right. So after the election. Um, He had a 26-point lead. 26 points. It's a huge, huge lead. I mean, almost unprecedented. Now, that decline during the Cummings-Barnard Castle row, um, really over the course of about two months to zero. It is very odd in British political history to see polling fluctuate with that kind of speed. Now, afterwards, it recovered, right? You had the vaccine process. We know the story, you know, and it recovered. But the speed of change is quite telling. Now, during last April, when we had, you know, the refurbishment, the number 10 sort of, tens of the refurbishment round, when we had the piles of body stuff, and we had all the various sort of corruption stories, we forgot about this later because the local elections happened and they won, and so that became the narrative. But actually, on the tail end of those stories, we were seeing several polls showing quite quick decline in Conservative poll support. Now, the early polling we've seen now, after the Hancock stuff, suggests something similar. I mean, you know, more modest, but we're talking about a few points here and there, but that is the direction of travel. You see changes in the polls quite quickly on these stories. So the polling, even though it seems very stubborn and even though it's quite upsetting and, you know, you see these memes, you know, constantly saying, oh, bad thing happens and the government increases its polling. Actually, that's not quite right. When you get past um, the vaccine and I think really the pandemic, you know, the more the pandemic goes away and sort of touch wood that that is the thing that's going to be happening, you know, in the medium term. The more you see those internal tensions within Conservatives, the more people spot some of these corruption stories and care about them. And there is a decline in support. Now, the point, I think, is the the key one here is that when that happens, Johnson has got nothing else to hold on to because of that definition is the people's will. When your opinion polling declines, you are in a catastrophically bad position. Tory MPs, Tory ministers, they know. They know that this guy is not fit to be the prime minister. They know that. The only thing that maintains their support is the fact that he maintains that opinion polling. And when it declines, they are going to come for him.
4: I wonder how long it is going to be before Brexit becomes a a factor in in this this change as well. But I I do think that people are so entrenched in, in their beliefs or, or in defending the way that they voted, and they're so understandably eager to blame the pandemic for for any yeah. sort of negative effects that it's going to take years for people to say, do you know, you know, I voted for leave, but do you know, I think Boris Johnson oversold that, and he, you know, I feel foolish now. Do you agree?
3: I think the thing to focus on to me is the effects of Brexit rather than Brexit itself. Yes. And this is, it sort of sounds like semantics, right? But I think in people's heads, or in leavers' heads, when we have these debates, they're going to be much more open to the latter, to, to the effects than they are to, to the question of whether or not we should have left. If we want, if we keep on having that conversation, should we or should we not have leave? left, then people resort back to their sort of their vote, their tribal identity, all of that stuff. If instead we focus on things that brexit has done that's a different debate and that's for northern ireland for scotland for fishing industries for creative industries for financial sectors over and over we see these negative effects and these will be coming remember these will be really hitting us in a period where we're seeing the scars of the pandemic you know once the government support ends and really when we're talking about freedom day another way of looking at freedom day in july is that's when the government support stops And yet many people will still be not wanting to go into work. They won't be going to go into the office where they'd be using a sandwich shop. They won't be going out to buy things. We will then see that economic damage combined with the Brexit economic damage. And that will hurt the government. And I think the the more that we sort of talk about that as was Brexit right or wrong, I think is a hindrance to us when we just focus on look at how they've cocked this up. Look at the mess that they've made of us here. That seems to me to be a a really powerful argument to use against them.
4: Yes, I I agree. Um, And finally, before we let you go, I mean, we're recording this in a time of flux, as I said in the intro. We're we're recording it on a Thursday morning. We don't know either the result of the Batley and Spend by-election or the result of the Euros quarterfinals. But if (laughs) Labour have lost... In, uh, in in Batley and Spen, is it a case of Starmer's going home? And if so, who is who is going to replace Keir Starmer?
3: I think no, it isn't, because the answer to your second question is so difficult. I mean, who you know, you look around, you think, what, well, Angela Rayner, Lee Nand? I mean, it's... Andy the,
4: Burnham's not even an MP, is he?
3: Andy Burnham's not even an MP, and, and I reject the idea that he would be in so much better place, you know, than Keir Starmer was. If you remember when Andy Burnham was actually in Westminster... He was just this kind of faceless android really he's got this kind of charisma this oomph to it. and by the way I, I like him we did an interview with him recently I, I find him incredibly sort of charismatic and funny and human but that's not what he was like when he was in westminster the westminster system as he himself says turned him into this android he's like that now because he's got the right job for him representing an area that he cares about that's why that's happened i think the idea of him being able to turn everything around is different i don't see the person and in fact Clearly the left of the party, the sort of Corbyn nostalgists, don't see them either or else they would be pushing for that person right now. Who could actually turn this around? The question is not who is the leader. The question is why is Labour choosing at the moment to seemingly have no opinion on any matter? There are strong opinions to be had on the economy. There are strong opinions to be had on liberal issues which actually do not fall into the neat dividing lines of the Tory culture war, but can appeal. I mean, you know, when you look at the the polling, for instance, on whether people think that we should talk about our colonial history in school curriculums, you will find that people in red wall seats have very similar opinions to the supposed metropolitan elites, you know, in in Manchester and and London and all the rest. There is a way of having an actual positive view of giving people something to vote for, to fight for, while still dodging the obvious culture war attacks that the the Tories are delivering to you, rather than having this sort of endless crouching defensiveness, which seems to be the posture of the party at the moment. And it's that debate, rather than who happens to be at the top, I think is the really important one in Labour
4: right now. That is something we're going to be keeping a close eye on. Thank you so much, Ian Dunst. It's been great having you. I hope we'll speak again soon. You can read his brilliant piece titled, Once Again, I'm Going to Say It, Boris Johnson's Fall Will Come! And it will be swift and brutal. (laughs) Swift and brilliant. Bring it on. Inject it in my veins. That appears in this week's uh, issue of The New European. If you'd like to enjoy more from The New European, do join us by subscribing for just £9.99 per month at thenueuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Ian Dunn, he's so good. Now, more of your new jobs, from Matt Hancock. Down with elitism says, Matt Hancock put lots of bodies in the ground, so he might as well do it officially as a gravedigger. I like your logic there, down with elitism. I don't know whether down with elitism means down with elitism or does it mean you're down with elitism? I'm down with it. I don't know. Anyway, Jack Dixon says, Matt Hancock's next job could be in cyber. He just doesn't know it yet. A reference there to that government campaign, which told creative types to just give it all up and get a job in putting data. Do you remember that? Uh, JCS says Matt Hancock should be an overnight security guard. Uh, Little to get wrong, plenty of time to reflect and his looks are perfect for a uniform with a peak cap. Pete Ferg says whatever Chris Grayling is botching at the moment, he must need a deputy made for Matt Hancock. Sam Webster says Matt Hancock should become a fluffer and Nicola Samford finally says since adulterous cheats seem to be welcome in this position, Matt Hancock should be the next prime minister. I I can't get you to saying Matt Hancock without saying Hat Mancock, but there you go. Uh now let's turn away from politics for a bit because the New European is also about the culture of Europe, and I want to reflect that more in this podcast as we uh go ahead. Jason Solomon's is our lead writer on film at The New European. This week we have his list of the 50 greatest European movies ever made. It's a superbly chosen, brilliantly written selection please buy the newspaper and, and read it but it's also a selection uh, which as it says in the paper is going to surprise and provoke and it's not just because it doesn't have carry on abroad and national lampoons european vacation in it hi there alistair campbell here editor at large the new european write a weekly column covering politics europe scotland ireland mental health sport lots and lots and lots and lots of stuff and if you'd like to enjoy more from the new european please join us Subscribe for the neweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. So welcome to the podcast, Jason Solomons. We've not had you before. This is great. now it's a pleasure to be here, Steve. Thanks for having me. Um, it is a great list. It is going to surprise and provoke, as it says. Um, first of all, before we start talking about the list, do you remember what the first sort of European movie was that you you ever saw, or or one that particularly stuck out for you as a young person and made you want to investigate European cinema more?
1: Definitely, I saw Jules Jim. Uh, a black on white, uh Julie Jim, I saw that and I fell in love with the the, the woman at the center of it, Jeanne Moreau, uh, and I just thought she was amazing. I think I must have been 12, 13. And that was the one I thought, this is very sophisticated. Look at them all driving there, riding their bikes along and all that sort of sunset. And it was that one. That, was the, 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 that got it for me, it seems sort of sexually provocative and a bit wanton, and I thought, God, these French people ha- have it good, don't they? I'd never really seen anything that was about that, that wasn't like an action-packed and didn't really have a particular story of anything, and yet was about the relationship between these people. Uh, and I just thought her sort of uh, her hair in the wind, was it, it sort of captured a sort of dappled, sunlit existence that was so exotic to me. Uh, and then I, they used to do these series on. I think it was BBC Two did a season, and it was Louis Mal season. Uh, and I and I saw her again in another of his Les Amants, the lovers. And I just thought she was she was brilliant. So it was it was her, strangely enough, not 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 Bardot, not anyone like that, that really uh, turned me on to to French cinema and therefore European cinema. But yeah, definitely Jules Jamin.
4: Yeah, well, it was definitely a French uh, film that, that got me into all this kind of stuff, and uh, uh, there was good hair involved in that as well. We'll talk about that one in a minute. Oh, but yeah. Let's let's get on to your list, because I you know, I don't want to do too many spoilers, because I want people to read the piece, but a lot of the, the usual suspects are not in it. Um, in fact, I was looking at the sight and sound list, which is a, a critic compiled list, isn't it? You might even have been involved in
1: it. I have a but couple of times, yeah.
4: The 100 greatest films that they, they have done in, in 2021, that's Obviously, the 100 greatest films made everywhere. There are four European films in the top 10, if we count uh, Russia in Europe. Uh, and the, all four of those aren't in your, your top 50. There's The Rules of the Game, Renoir. There's there's Eight and a Half by Fellini. People will be familiar with those. Elsewhere on the list, there are movies by, you know, Jean Vigo, Antonioni, uh, Bergman, uh, De Sica. Do you pronounce his name? Victoria De Sica, yeah. The yeah, Bicycle yeah, Thieves will which be Which aren't one on it. your list. Um why? Why are they not on your list? Well, uh, I mean, what?
1: Fellini is on my list, yeah. uh, and uh, not to seek about, Italian neorealism is, is on the list, and Antonioni um, is on the list with La Notte. I, I I I restricted it very quickly to just doing one by famous auteur. Otherwise we'd have to have like four Goddard, two Truffaut, three Fellini, and it would just, it would just never stop. And we wouldn't get a look in on the, on the spread of it. So yes, these are maestros of film that have dominated the world film landscape and sort of carried the message of European filmmaking around the world. But I thought that if we were gonna look at where we are now, that some of those cast too long a shadow. I think French cinema, for example, is too much in the shadow of the new wave. And criticism in general is too much in the shadow of the new wave and Italian neorealism. And it was time, I thought, for newer audiences to sort of say, yes, that was great. They were a great movement and we should know about them all. But there was also so much more to European cinema. So. I did limit myself to one Fellini, but I put one Fellini in there. I mean, I love Fellini. My wedding was a Dolce Vita themed (laughs) wedding in Italy, but the Fellini that, you know, I love La Strada with Giulietta Massina and I loved uh, Knights of Cabiria, which is the Fellini that I went to, which has this this partner that he had in, in life and in film, Giulietta Massina, with this extraordinary performance. I mean, I think she's just one of the great neglected European actresses and stars. She had a figure like Charlie Chaplin, She was a sort of silent film actress who just in these two films just was captured a certain... Almost a Commedia dell'arte kind of acting that she brought to it, uh, and brought to a modernity. And I wanted to get her in there, so that's why I've gone for the Knights of Cabiria something less less well known than Doctor Vita or Eight and a Half, but I think just as powerful and just a just as typical of that period of Italian film and Italian film history.
4: Well, that is a film that I've never seen, and now I am going to see it. So, so let's talk about list per se because I love I love a list, and and for these reasons, um, and for that for that, for that kind of. Reason. And some people hate lists. What are the what are the good and bad things about lists? Do you think?
1: Well, I think lists. I mean, you mentioned that sight and sound one that was compiled by you know hundred different critics from all around the world, and they give their list, and then you kind of go for a a, a sort of medium, so that you do end up with a sort of like a happy medium unless there's a sort of dominant one at the list then it, it averages out and it becomes a little bit consensual so I think the thing with the list is that yeah it's divisive everyone like, well, why isn't that it's not like the league table is it at the end of the year where you just go well you know there's a one undisputed the league table doesn't lie isn't what they say mm. Steve you know it's yes. always that um and Arsenal are rubbish so they're eight that's fine no no disputing that so with, with the list I thought well I like a list that where the the, the the taste of the compiler are reflected therein. And you are, you kindly asked me to compile this list. And I thought, well, this is my chance to do something about it. And lists don't tend to, overturn canons enough in my book and I think we're in a period now where certainly with sort of film and art history we look to bring in a few more voices we are looking to uh, i don't know to to level the playing field but in order to do that you have to sort of you know muck up the over the playing field with a, with a, with a, with a lot of lot of spikes because otherwise that playing field will just settle back to where you are so I thought oh, no, I'm gonna think about female filmmakers. It's a constant message. I'm gonna think about diversity and can those, can those inflect and change a list? Uh, it might annoy people who are traditionalists. It might not be radical enough for others. And so I thought I'd do it my way. And also I haven't seen yeah i am 50 something but there are there are lots of films i haven't seen in the world it's one of the favorite games we play at film festivals among film critics you know get drunk and admit that you haven't seen you know the, the long goodbye or something like that or nashville but um and people do well, where they have a slight lacuna in their knowledge, and I've got some of those with with European filmmakers. So I, I part of the list. They've had to be fifty films that I've seen, and that I that I know, and that have affected me. And also, I thought then I'd look at the the European film festivals, which do lead the world. You know, we've been. They're the oldest, Venice and Cannes and San Sebastian and Edinburgh. These are very old, long running film festivals. So I, I thought, well, I can't just say that Jason Solomon says these are great films. Let's also have some consensus from the vagaries of juries that have been at, uh, at film festivals over the last sort of 50 or 60 years. So that's where I kind of got there. And then I asked, then I just asked some of my mates on WhatsApp groups. It's like, which what was the one that did it for you? Like you asked me at the start here. And so many of them said things like Luc Besson's Subway, uh, the fifth element you know they, they introduced a lot of people uh diva uh, for example introduced people to that sort of paris filtered 80s look and that sort of synth sound uh, and i thought you know i've got i've got to put those in they were so influential for so mi- for generations of uh, of young cinema goers so i didn't want to to get away from the fact that our readers would have been like you and me remember that sort of first jolt of of exoticism that sort of first pungent in- inhalation of a ghoul was that will turn you on to european <laughs> cinema
4: by the way if anyone here is is listening to this and has not seen the, the long goodbye or nashville uh the robert altman long goodbye please please go and uh, and go and rectify that immediately that's that's one of my favorite films some Isn't days it? it's my favorite film
1: yes uh, i'm, long I'm long with goodbye. you on that there's a season at uh, bfi southbank Obviously yes there films is right now yeah Yes,
4: there is. Um, Let's talk about some movies that are on the list. You mentioned Diva there, which is on the list. Without talking about the very top, what are a couple of individual movies that people might not
1: know about that will surprise people that are on there? Yeah, that's good because I did want to, you know, I, I wanted to kind of people say, well, how can you not have you know, such and such because it's such a sort of famous uh, film and I knew that would annoy people a bit but I did want to kind of come up with some familiar ones. So I'm hoping there are sort of, you know, ten that you go, oh yeah, of course that's on there, I've heard of that and then there's all those ones where you kind of go, oh, I've heard of that but I actually haven't ever seen it maybe I'll get round to, to seeing it. It. And I wanted ones that hopefully you've never heard of. Uh, so the ones that perhaps people have never heard of uh, is, is a Russian filmmaker called Andrei Zviagintsev, who I think is one of the great masters of all time. And it takes a little while to become a master, but I think once you've done two or three majestic pieces that sort of sit in the can competition and hold that screen and then travel around, you just think, God, that guy's got something. And so he's Andrei Zviagintsev. Uh, he, he, he shot to fame with a film called The Return, which is his debut film, which won the Golden Lion at Venice and no one had heard of him and it was an extraordinary pulsating piece and then he followed it up with The Banishment and then three in a row he did a film called Elena about modern Russia and the film that I've picked which is called Leviathan which is just tremendous kind of mighty piece about a drunken doctor in rural Russia who has to fight to keep his uh, family farm away from the greedy local mayor who's got a big picture of Putin in his office. It's almost age old, but it's so masterfully done. I have to say, I think he's a, he's a, he's an extraordinary filmmaker. He, he followed that up with a film called Loveless, which is almost sort of gut-wrenching and horrible and hard. There's a sort of screaming child that goes missing in the middle of this film and no one's really noticed. It's about the lovelessness at the heart of society. And I just think what he does is, is comment on Russia and manage to just about get away with it without being censored. And um, he's, a, he's a filmmaker I would just, uh, I, I think, has although he's won plenty of awards around the world, including at the London Film Festival uh, about three years ago, people don't know his work enough. He's not acknowledged yet as, a, as, a, as an absolute master. And I think he's up there with, with Michael Haneke as the two uh, masters of austerity in the era of austerity.
4: One staple of these lists that is on there, and I mentioned it, I alluded to it earlier on, is "Breathless," the great uh, the start of the start of the new wave, wasn't it? What made that undroppable, where where other things are droppable?
1: That one was was for me. It's still a game changer. It was a game changer for me personally. When I uh, studied languages, I had a year abroad in Paris. Uh, which is why I did it. Really, <laughs> wanted to go and live in Paris. Uh, and uh, the first night I was there, a friend that I'd gone with said, "All oh, that they're, they're showing this film uh, at the the, the the British Institute, the uh, British Council. They're showing this film. Uh, let's go and meet them, some of the people that we were getting together." That's what they're showing. I thought, "Oh, all right, I'll go along." And I'd heard of Abu Dhabi, but i hadn't seen it, uh, and they showed it there and. That was my first night in Paris. I was going to live there, and there they were, Belmondo and Gene Seberg walking down the Champs Elysees, which was literally about twenty yards from where we were watching the movie, smoking and just chatting and being existential. <laughs> it, it changed my life there and then. I went out there, and you know, I <laughs> wanted to kind of find find a little Gene Seberg character, little elfin French girl with a bob cut, uh, and, and and I wanted to smoke coolers and walk along the streets and and listen to the jazz soundtrack of it. I bought. It that night, uh, I think it's a game changer. I'd also never see, apart from all those sort of superficials, I don't think I'd ever seen a film that just did all of those jump cuts and play yeah. with reality and just and just talk and talk and talk. That was sometimes amusing, sometimes completely impossible, sometimes uh, densely philosophical. Sometimes it was sexy. Sometimes it was off puttingly cruel. Uh, and I, I I, think that you look at it and you think, oh God, that's why things are in black and white. That's why French fashion leads the way. That's, it, it seems to be the founding of modern cinema to me. That moment for me, uh, it, it is undroppable. I don't think you have cinema of the last 50 years without that moment, without Abu And I, Every time you return to it, you, you see something new in it and you see something that's still being used today, either from a technique or from a theme. So I, I, I think it is undroppable.
4: And something else that is absolutely jaw-dropping and without naming it it's your choice um, at, at number one. What is... I'm going to... Let's not name it. Let's le- let people read the article. But what is it about your number one pick that made you choose that as your, as your favourite?
1: Well, I, I wanted to get films that encapsulate the European experience. Yes. So they didn't just be made in Europe. They have to sort of reflect what's going on in Europe. And that could be politically or geographically in some way. And there's no doubt when I looked at the list that, that war is something that unites most European films. And if not... It's, if not about war, it's race in some way and the mix of races and the mix of the what we're dealing with in post-colonialism, the legacy of that here in Europe, still going on, and whether it's about uh, Islam or whether it's about uh, anti-Semitism or whether it's about uh, the old Catholicisms of France and Italy and Spain. These are the are, are real social issues. So the film that I picked at the top is about crime, which I think is you know one of those great, great uh, European exports that we we exported to the states, and I think they they probably took it over. But you know we've always done it, and it's about. Uh, layers of crime and making your way in a society that always judges you. Uh, This one, it's a prison movie, which I think is always a great microcosm for what's going on outside and how to survive in there and then how to come out on top. And I think this film sort of posits that there's a new, a new power coming to Europe uh, and one that, you know, is is proudly European as well as it has its, its feet in, in its its origins in maybe North Africa or in the Arab world. So that's why I picked this movie. And also it's told with a complete art house Hollywood style, which I think uh, when Europe, European cinema acknowledges its own European uh, uniqueness, but then imports all the great stuff that Hollywood has given to movies, then we're talking, you know, I love a Hollywood movie at its best, but I love a European art house movie at its best. And so my number one combines all of those in a cocktail of, of, of style and crime and immigrant ambition. So that's why I've gone for that film at number one by a filmmaker. I think it was also uh, one of the, one of the very best that Europe's got to offer.
4: You'll need to read the piece to work out what that is, but I urge you to do that. I mean, Jason, it's. I, I know we're going to have to let you go. It's, it has been an awful eighteen months for cinema, as it as it has been for, for for everything else. Um, what have people missed uh, that has been good that has crept out? You know, been released on on you know straight or straight to streaming or, or whatever during that period, and and then you're off to Cannes in a, in a few days.
1: What is there to look forward to at Cannes? Oh, that's a good question. Well, looking forward to can is is getting there. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I've still got to take some tests before I get there. They're not general knowledge tests either, Steve. I've got to, like actual physical swabbing, <laughs> so there's that to get there. Look, what it's a different can to usual. It's a little bit of a backlog of can. So normally, can sets the agenda and the films that I'll be covering in the new European over the year. Most of them I'll have first seen in can and been alerted to them in can and got on them so that I can then report on them. And so there's been that backlog. So we 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 don't really know what's you know people have sat on these stories for quite a long time. But I am looking. Forward forward to seeing, uh, you know, story. There's a new film by Laos Carax, who was unlucky not to be in the list with uh, Les Amands du Pont Neuf a film that I absolutely love with Juliette Binoche. And that could have been on the list. And I struggle with getting that one, but he's got a new film uh, out there in Cannes. And always looking forward to seeing that. There's a Joanna Hogg's film, The Souvenir Part Two, which I love. the first one of hers, a a UK filmmaker who's definitely got a European style. People compare her to Eric Romer. So her follow-up to that Souvenir Part Two is playing. And I'm I'm really anxious to see what she's done with that, with Tilda Swinton uh, in there. Uh so can is definitely it hasn't got the big Hollywood um element this year. I think the Americans are not coming, so they 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 thought they wouldn't put all those in. But I'm intrigued to see how they'll do a red carpet, that famous Monte des Marches going up the red steps. It's a sort of iconic uh passage for any film uh, over its career and certainly in, in, in the European film calendar but I don't know how they're going to do that this year and I don't know how I don't even know if I'm allowed to kiss people one of the main reasons I go to Cannes Steve is to do the to faire la bise to give kind of two kisses maybe three if I'm lucky to anyone I meet I don't think that's allowed yet in France I think it's still still not being done even in masks so uh, that that intrigues me and as for films that perhaps people will have missed Uh, Over the period, Um, I did a big piece for us on a film called the Truffle Hunters. Yes, um, that was going to be part of the documentary, you know, running for all the awards, uh, but it never came out. They kept they kept burying it and saying, look, I want to see it on the big screen. Uh, It is out next week, July the 9th in the UK. Finally, Uh, I wrote about it quite a few months ago. And for me, it's just the, the, the most delicious documentary of the year about these dogs that look for truffles and their masters in the forest, the fairy tale forests of Alba in Northern Italy. Italy uh, and the way that this multi I think it's a billion dollar industry comes out of these tiny little mushrooms that come out of the ground in secret spots that only certain families are allowed to pick because there's an imurta and a mafia around it and then there's a guy that sells them in the marketplace and just deliciously shaves his truffle onto his pasta and imbibes the Nebbiolo wine from around there too and it, it, it's just you know, it, you know if you can't get away this summer watching the truffle hunters will do it for you it, it's a it's a magical Film and I'm, you know, really hope that people uh, catch up with that one.
4: Great. Well, we can uh, we can all enjoy that one. I hope you get to uh, enjoy stuff at Cannes as well, Jason Solomon's.
1: What a pleasure. We'll speak soon. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Enjoy the list, and uh, I'll be reporting uh, back from Cannes for you.
4: Marvelous. <laughs> That was Jason Solomons. You can read his brilliant piece, uh, The 50 Greatest European Films. You'll argue with about it. You'll you, you, it'll, it'll, it'll wind you up. It'll make you go, oh God, yeah, that's such a great film. It's a, a fantastic list. And it's in this week's edition of The New European. If you'd like to enjoy more from The New European, do join us by subscribing for just £9.99 a month at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. One more thing on the agenda then, isn't there? And it's the Hall of Shame. It's my home for terrible laws, bad politicians, just things that wind me up regularly. Uh, Lord Moylan is in the Hall of Shame. Why is Lord Moylan in the Hall of Shame, the Conservative peer? Well, in the aftermath of England's Uh, 2-0 win against Germany in the Euros. This is what the German ambassador to the UK, Andreas Michaelis, tweeted. He tweeted this. Congratulations, England. Much deserved victory. Wishing you all the best in this tournament. The great competition between England and Germany will continue. And Lord Moylan, this is what the Conservative peer, Lord Moylan, worked closely with Boris Johnson down the years. He was his HS2 Tsar, I believe, he was certainly his airport Tsar. This is what Lord Moylan tweeted. Poor Germans, this wasn't the Brexit narrative fed them by their press, was it? 10-0 there to Germany, I would say, with Lord Moyland being sent off for being a complete halfwit. And talking of which, alack, egad, harumph, it's Anne Corner. Yes, the magical time of the week once again, when I read out the most ridiculous bits from Anne ridiculous column in the ridiculous Daily Express and Settle In, because this one will take a little while. I'm going to read out this piece word for word were there an award for the most useless instruction booklet ever produced i would be nominating the one for the new mealy dishwasher in its problem-solving guide it states that if clouding has occurred on glassware the rinse aid dose should be increased Unfortunately, some 50 pages earlier, it had told you to decrease the dose for the same problem. Mealy is, of course, a German company. Perhaps Angela Merkel wrote the instructions to punish us for Brexit. Oh, God, make it stop, stop going on about the Germans, stop going on about, oh, God, anyway. But leading the Hall of Shame this week are the roaming charge deniers. And British mobile phone users are about to discover what Matt Hancock has already learned. Roaming can be costly. If UK tourists are ever allowed back into mainland Europe without the quarantine demanded by Angela Merkel and Whittacombe's mate, they might be as reluctant as Matt Hancock now is to ring home. And that's because mobile phone roaming charges are being reintroduced on the EE network and rivals are lowering the amount of data that British people can use in the EU without paying extra. It's a story, this, that's causing even redder faces than normal in Brexiteer circles, because they were so confident, weren't they, that Britain would be able to retain a benefit of EU membership that was first introduced in December 2016, despite the fact that we'd voted to give up the many benefits of EU membership six months earlier than 2016. And in April 2016, vote leaves Chairman Matthew Elliott claim that even suggesting that roaming charges might come back after Brexit was doing down consumer rights to try and win the referendum. There is no evidence, he said, to suggest that roaming charges will go up if we vote leave. And Boris Johnson said they wouldn't go up either. He said there are plenty of other parts of the world where the free markets and competition has been driving down the cost of mobile roaming charges without the need for a vast bureaucracy. And then the Brexit cheerleaders were emboldened by this, so they went to work the mobile phone charges won't go up after Brexit, wrote the Daily Express. That was in February of 2017. In September of 2018, the Daily Express said Brexit lies exposed. Mobile roaming charges won't come back for Brits travelling to the EU. And as recently as this January, January 2021, the Sun declared mobile phone operators will not bring back roaming charges for Brits travelling in Europe. And this got Brexiteer MPs like Owen Paterson and Julian Knight all riled up. Owen Paterson said it was another scare story. Julian Knight said it was another Ramona myth. They all joined in the scoffing. But what's happened now? Now that EE have brought back the charges and other companies are lowering data caps for UK customers who visit the EU. Well, Boris Johnson and Matthew Elliott and Owen Paterson and Julian Knight have been very quiet about it. But what have the Brexit papers said? Don't blame Brexit, said the Telegraph. It's BT's opportunism that's brought back EU roaming charges. Another uh, uh, rant against capitalism there from the Pinko Daily Telegraph. But it's not fair to say don't blame Brexit because Brexit is entirely to blame for this. Roaming charges aren't allowed in the EU under the roam as if you're at home policy. They are now allowed here and companies are bringing them in just like we said they would. The government's doing nothing to stop them. As Johnny Rotten once said, have you ever had the feeling you've been cheated? That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thank you to Ian Dunn. Thank you to Jason Solomons. Thank you to you for listening. Please remember to leave a positive review for this podcast on your podcatcher of choice. They really do mean a lot to us. Positive reviews, that is, not podcatchers of choice. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing for 9 99 per month at theneweuropeancouk slash subscribe. You can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow the new european on twitter at the new european you can follow me on twitter at sanglesey s-a-n-g-l-e-s-e-y until the next time we meet so long snowflakes
2: and 365-day returns. Confidence
0: starts with loving who you are.